Amen. Greetings. Good to have you here with us this morning. If you have your copy of scripture and you haven't already done so, you can go ahead and turn to First John chapter 2 is where we're going to find ourselves. We've been listening really to the heart of a father in the sense that John is expressing this heart for the church. These new believers, old believers, generation of believers. The one thing that we know about John at this point is that John is probably about 90 years old. Uh, And think about this for a moment. At 90 years old, he's really the only living disciple left. Everybody else has already been killed. Uh, Matter of fact, Paul is probably not even alive at this point. He's already dead. So John is talking to a generation of believers who have lost, for the most part, all of those heroes of the faith that for so long were looked up to. And he's talking to a generation of believers who never saw Jesus with their own eyes, who never saw him do any miracles. They are accepting a story that is being shared with them, a gospel story that they tangibly are not connected to. And so this is why John opens up his gospel, not his gospel, but his gospel does the same thing, but as well with the pastoral letter, you can hear it with even more urgency than his gospel. So he takes the gospel opening and he gives it hands and feet. And he says to him, I'm telling you things that I saw with my own eyes. We touched him. We saw him. We were with him. I'm telling you what he relayed to us. And this is important to understand because John is, in a sense, this father to them, these new believers, generational believers. He is the one who is sharing a story that they have accepted and are learning to live out in their own lives. Now, when, when you think about what John has laid forth for us thus far in this epistle, he has some very significant yet very predictable themes because John highlights these themes in his gospel. And basically in this epistle, he's going to come with this big idea that all the commandments can be summarized in the idea of biblical love. Okay. Biblical love is really what is the center of what it means to walk in the light, to walk in the ways of Christ, to be a disciple of Jesus, somehow is centered around the way that you love. And the way that you love has to be defined from a biblical perspective, not from your human perspective or from an emotional perspective. As we progress in love, what happens is that love will then provide clarity for us. That love will promote maturity in us. That's what John says. So in other words, it becomes more clear about how you are to live life. It becomes more clear about what your purpose is. It becomes more clear of of what it means when Jesus taught you the things that he did and said the things that he did. So as you immerse yourself in both living out the gospel and learning the gospel, clarity comes to mind. But also maturity, he has that in mind as well. He calls them dear children because in one sense, we are all the children of God, no matter how old you are. It's kind of like my dad, um, you know, I'm, I'll turn 50 years old this year. And my dad is 80, uh, he'll be 83 this year. 
but yet I am still his child. You know, I'm still son. He thinks of me as a dad would think of a small child. And that's the way John is thinking of all of these disciples of Jesus. He's thinking no matter how old they are, how long they've been in the faith, they are all dear children. Why? Because we're all loved by the heavenly father. So that's kind of the context that John has presented to us. But within that, there is this maturity that's expected. In other words, we shouldn't be acting as children, even though we are dear children. We should be growing in our faith. We should be showing signs of maturity. But what are those signs? I mean, what is it that we look to? What are we comparing ourselves to to say, look, I'm growing in Christ? Well, John simply says, look to Jesus. Look at the way that he lived. Look at the way he made decisions. Look at the way that he thought. Look at the way he saw the world. And you have a great idea, a great framework of how you're growing or not growing in maturity in Christ. So as we continue through 1 John, we're seeing some of these themes develop. I think this is crucial to our understanding of John's ultimate message of this idea of biblical love. First of all, it's helping us to learn what it means to love. Okay, because love is a word that is, especially in the English, English language, is very loose in its uh, definition because we will use the term in many different ways. We've talked about that many times before, but we would use the same word, I love Krispy Kreme donuts and I love my wife. And we know that there's a variation between those two, hopefully. You know, hopefully there's a little bit more dedication in one than there is to the other, although Krispy Kreme donuts are pretty good. But um, we, we know, we understand that. So, this idea of love and how do we define this word love? What does it mean to learn to love? Uh, it also, John is hoping to bring clarity about what it means to follow Jesus. So not just this, this esoteric idea of love, but it's also this practical idea of love. In other words, what does it mean to walk in the light? This is the way he determines it. Or to be a disciple of Jesus or to walk in the ways of Jesus. Those are all the same ways of of relating walking in the light and not walking in the darkness. And also, John intends to bring encouragement and assurance about the salvation of believers. In other words, he wants you to know where you stand with Christ. He wants you to know that you have this solid relationship with God, that nothing can tear it apart. And to know that, you have to know what it's based on. If you don't know what it's based on, then you're always gonna wonder if it's real or not. You're always gonna wonder if it's lasting or not. So John wants to make sure that he takes care of that foundation of understanding our salvation because it affects the way we think about it, and the way we think about it affects the way we live it out in life. So if you remember thus far where we've been in these early stages of this epistle, in chapter one, John starts off with the reality of Jesus's incarnation. In other words, he tells them, I, I walked with Jesus, I saw him, I touched him, he wasn't a ghost, he wasn't a, a, a figment of my imagination, he was a very real person, and he really did these things. I witnessed them with my own eyes. I'm telling you the things that he taught us. And, and he begins to relate this idea that Jesus is light, and that he is the word, and in him is life. 
Now, again, these are all principles that he starts his gospel out with, and these are all principles that the whole Bible starts off with. So we go back to Genesis in chapter one, and it talks about a world that was dark and formless, and into it, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and he divided, separated the light from the darkness. And then what happened immediately is life began to come forth on the earth, life in the sense of the birth birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, life in the sense of the animals on land, and then ultimately the apex of that would be the creation of human, Adam and Eve eventually from Adam. And so all of this kind of cascades into this creation of life. So that's the connection that John is making. He is light. He is the word. And just as the word spoke light into existence, it is the word that speaks light into you because your life was much like the condition of the earth at the beginning of the Bible. It was formless. It was void. It was dark. And into that condition, you didn't cause a change. He did. He spoke into it. How did he speak into it? The word came to you. Who is the word? It's Jesus. Light began to shine in your heart. What's that light? It's Jesus. And Jesus spoke this truth, spoke this life into you, and that's how salvation came. It wasn't from your effort. It wasn't from your great decision-making process. It wasn't from your logic. It was from the grace of God, a gift of God. He spoke into it and light life began to pour forth. The reason John wants us to understand this is because that is our source for life and light. It's the relationship with God. And in that is where we find our joy. Because if your joy is based on anything other than that, your joy is based in something that's fleeting. It's based in something that may be here today and gone tomorrow. But if your joy is based in these eternal truths, then John knows that you can find joy no matter what the circumstances of your life are, are like. So joy is found as we fellowship with God and as we fellowship with each other, okay? So we find this fellowship, how? Well, John continues on. We find this fellowship through transparency, we find it through confession. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when that happens, we have fellowship one with another, okay? So John is saying there that the more transparent we can become and drop the facades and drop uh, the religious front that I've got everything together and everything's okay and be honest with one another, the faster healing can come, the faster light can come into our life. If you are not living in a relationship with another believer in the sense where you can be transparent with them, then light is not radiating on your life. Therefore, these things are not being exposed. One of the reasons God gives us the gift of the church is so that we are with other brothers and sisters that we can be honest with. And that's why John goes into all this about saying, you know, if, if you say that you have no sin, you're lying. You, you have sin. There is sin in your life. Therefore, we should be transparent with one another and be honest with one another about where we are. But we're afraid to do that because we're afraid of being judged by our sin, which again is what John is trying to hit at is... If that thought exists, we have not yet achieved the level of Christian community that God intended. Because God intended for us to be able to be honest with one another. 
because he knows in the world you can't be honest with people. So he creates this environment where we can be honest with one another. And this is a theme throughout all of the New Testament. James picks up on this. He says, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. And he's not, I don't believe James is talking about a physical healing, although that could be part of it. I think at the heart of it, he's talking about a spiritual healing that you may be healed. In other words, we all long to be honest about where we are and who we are and to be loved in spite of that. And in Christian community is where it should be found. And so this is why John is saying the things that he says, like, if you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, then the love of God's not in you. Why? Because somehow the love of God found a way to love what you have deemed unlovable. And you say the love of God is in you. How do you explain that? How do you explain the love of God that went to great depths to save you, but yet you can find a person that you don't believe deserves to be saved? That doesn't make sense. And so John is pointing out some of these inconsistencies because these inconsistencies are robbing us of our joy. If we ignore our sin, we are ignoring God's truth, and ultimately we are calling him a liar. Then chapter two, John begins to talk about Jesus in the light of what he is for us. And he talks about Jesus as our advocate. In other words, we don't have an adversary, we have an advocate. We don't have an accuser, we have an advocate. So therefore, our relationship with God, when we confess our sins, he doesn't go, oh, I know how dirty you are. Oh, I know the things that you've done, and it's far worse than you even admit. No, you don't have an accuser, you have an advocate. You have an advocate who says, you know what? I'm pushing you towards sinlessness. I want you to set the bar high as being like God. That's the ultimate thing. We want to be like God in the sense of we think like him and we value things the way he does. But if you ever fall short of that, you have an advocate. And the advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous, which leads us to the next part that John presents, which he is the propitiation. And we talked about the difference of expiation and propitiation and how that is such a beautiful thing. Big $5 words that mean something as simple as this. Not only did the sacrifice of Jesus pay the penalty of your sin, but it invited you to be in Christ. And in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees his son. And in his son, he is well pleased. So when he looks at you, if you are in Christ, he finds you pleasing. So therefore, that takes the wrath of God away. That satisfies him. He is the one who was offended, and the offended party is now satisfied. That is propitiation. How did that happen? Because of Jesus. Now what? Okay, so now we understand these deep thoughts and these deep connections and almost very philosophical and... Um, a lot of ideology in there of light and dark and all the symbolism. But now what is the rubber to the road kind of mentality? In other words, what, what do we physically do? How do we live because these things are true? Well, he says we like him. We, we live the way Jesus lived. So we live in him in a sense. We understand that he's given us this pattern of living or walking in the light. In other words, Jesus came and lived to model for us what it means to be a lover of God and a child of God. Think about that for a moment, seriously. If all we needed was the forgiveness of sins, why three years of ministry? 
Why not when Jesus was of age and fit all the parameters of what the Passover lamb was supposed to be? Why didn't he just go and die? Why spend three years walking with people? Why call these disciples? Why all those sermons? Because it's just as important about how you live after, you say, after you're saved as it is to get you to the point of salvation. The point of salvation is this moment in time, but then you've got to live in that salvation from that point forward. How do we know we're doing this right? Jesus modeled it for us. For three years, he showed us what it means for the love of God to flow through you. And notice that Jesus touched people that other people wouldn't. Jesus embraced the lepers, the prostitutes, the drunkards, the notorious sinners of his day, the people that were marginalized and pushed to the outskirts of society, Jesus was constantly going and bringing them in as the good shepherd. He was bringing them back in and giving them status in the community. Now, that is an example of what it means for us to live like Jesus. In other words, think about this in your own life. Do you spend more time with the people that you like and you agree with and look more like you? Or do you find yourself reaching out to people who are very different, people who maybe before Jesus you would have never spent time with, but yet something in your heart compels you to go outside of your comfort zone? That's Jesus. And if you don't have that ever, then the question is, are you walking in the light the way he wants you to walk in the light? Now, again, don't walk out of here and go, all right, well, Jack said I need to create relationships with people who are very much unlike me. If you're doing it for that reason, you're doing it because I told you to, not because God told you to. I'm not telling you to go out of here and do anything except ground yourself more in Christ. And when you do that, those other things, whatever it is God's calling you to do, whatever you've been created to do, those things will begin to happen naturally, not because a preacher told you to do it, not because your mama told you to do it, because God told you to do it. Why? Because you are in a relationship with him. This is why John keeps pointing us back to our relationship with Christ. It's why he doesn't define walking in the light. He leaves it almost a little bit mysterious because walking in the light is gonna look very different from every single one of us because God's designed us differently and our calls are different. Therefore, the way you find what you've been created for is to root yourself in Christ. So in living in the way of Jesus, what happens? We are finding what God intended for us to do or to live the way God intended for us to live. So let's look at our passage for today and see how it breaks down. It really breaks down into two very simplistic truths. The passage that we're looking at today, you could do one of two ways. You can do A, we could spend the next several months here breaking apart all of these truths because it is very, very deep. Or B, we can look at the highlight of it. We can look at the main truths and pull those truths out and go, okay, these are the overarching themes or truths that come from this passage. And then it's up to you, each one of you, to dig deeper on what that means for you. So I've elected to go that second route to see what this passage is saying and then leave it to all of you and your relationship and pursuit of Jesus to find out what that means for you specifically, how that calls you to live and to think. So let's jump into the passage, verse seven, to begin with. Beloved, and let's stop right there, okay? That was really short, right? You thought we were gonna get through this really fast and all of a sudden we take another break. But I just wanna point out something there that I think is good. And I'm gonna pass it along to you because this is the way I think of it. I'm not saying that this is what this word necessarily means. I'm just relaying to you, this is what, how I see it and it helps me to think about it that way. And that is to break that word into two different words and that is be loved, Okay? 
when he calls them the beloved, and you think about the context of what John is writing, he's calling them to understand what it means to be loved by God. In other words, do you understand that you are loved by the Father? Yes, I believe God loves me. No, no, no. Do you understand that? Have you thought about what it means to be loved? Do you understand what God did to demonstrate his love for you? Do you understand what God does on a continual basis, not just once a long time ago in history, but daily how God continues to demonstrate that you are loved? God wants a relationship with you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to hear what you're thinking about. He wants to hear your struggles. He wants to hear your celebrations. God wants to be a part of all of those things. Why? Because he is a heavenly father. I, last night, went to a father-daughter dance with my youngest child, the only daughter that I have. Her name is Caroline. And that's something the school does every year. I've gone to these every year. And I'm, I'm not a dancer, per se. That's where I would make a very good Baptist, because I, um, I, maybe I wouldn't make a good Baptist, because I'll tell you this, my style of dancing is turn on some rap music and just let the beat tell my feet and hands where to go. I mean, I like to freelance it, all right? Not the bad rap music, okay? Don't judge me. But, you know, that kind of beat, like, and your feet just kind of follow that, and you're like, yeah. Uh, that, you know, that's the kind of thing that I like to But this kind of uh, dancing is very high-scale dancing. It's like... Somebody tells you what to do, and everybody in the group does it, and it's like, put your foot forward and tap that foot. Go backwards, tap that foot. Let's grapevine. It's all that kind of stuff, which I'm terrible at. I hate that kind of stuff. But you know why I look forward to this event every year? Because it's just me and her, and I have her attention, and the whole thing is set up for me to spend time with her, and we act goofy together, and she sees her dad doesn't know how to do this, but yet he's out there kind of trying to do this. And I tell her things that I don't really get to tell her in that context, like that walking up there last night, I said to her, I said, hey, you know what, I just don't understand why God is so good to me. She was like, what do you mean? I was like, what did I do to deserve to be able to come to this event with the prettiest girl in this whole school? She's like, dad. But it's moments like that where I really get to relay to her how much I love her. And you know, I know that there were moments in that dance last night where she wanted to go and be with her friends, and I let her do that, and I think it's great that she did. But you know what this dad's heart was longing for? For her to come back and spend time with me. That's because I am her father, and I'm not even a perfect one. How much more does God desire time with you if he's the perfect heavenly father? How much more does he want to tell you how much he loves you and how much you mean to him and how much he has gone to the greatest extremes so that you could have a hope and a future? You are loved by God. If you get nothing else out of this today, take that one treasure away. Part of walking with Jesus is learning how to be loved. Let's continue. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So John is referencing here something that Jesus taught. 
And what he knows is these believers have heard the things that Jesus taught, even though they don't even have a New Testament yet. They have parts of it in the forms of letters that Paul wrote or Peter wrote or John wrote. So they don't have a collective New Testament where they can open up and flip to the pages. They just heard these stories, these teachings of Jesus. And so John is referencing that. He's like, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Well, what is he referencing specifically? Well, it seems to come from the gospel of John. He's referencing something that Jesus taught in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus said there again. He said, love one another in verse 34. He says, love one another at the end of verse 34. He says, love one another in the middle of verse 34. Verse 35, the way that they're gonna know your disciples, by the way, you love one another. Do you see four times in those two verses, three times in one verse, he says, love one another, love one another, love one another. All of this is centered on somehow following Jesus translates in the way that we love another. So it's not just our reciprocating love of God. It's not God loved me, so therefore I love God. Jesus says somehow the economy of God is different in the sense that because I am loved of God and I love God, it's going to translate to me loving other people the way God has loved me. This is the greatest commandment also that Jesus taught that John is referencing as well. Hey, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is just like it or connected to it or can't be separated from it. That is love your neighbor as yourself, okay? So it's about loving God first and foremost. That's the foundation, but then it overflows and translates into loving other people. So this brings me to this conclusion. I want to explain this out. You're going to disagree with this to begin with, and I understand it because I disagree with it too. Paper not the best wording, but I want it to be a little bit shocking so that you hear what I'm really trying to emphasize, okay? So the first one is this. Part one, don't pursue truth, pursue love. Okay, now I know that hits you, you're like, whoa, don't, don't pursue truth. Wait a minute, this is, that's heresy, don't pursue truth. And, and really the key is understanding part two. Look at part two. Let truth inform your love. So it's not that you don't pursue truth because pursuing truth is a call. And let's remember the scripture says that Jesus is the truth. So truth is pursuing Jesus. So it's not that I'm saying don't pursue truth at all, but what I want you to realize is that what you're really pursuing is love and truth is, help, is what helps you to define what love really is. In other words, love devoid of truth is just emotion. In other words, I love someone because of reasons I come up with to love them. Maybe I love them because they're like me or I love them because they're likable or they're funny or they're fun to be around. Maybe I love them because they have such a great personality and yet there's things in their life that are very different from what I believe, but then I begin to kind of okay those things because I love them so much. That leads me into error, doesn't it? So truth informs our love. Truth is not the pursuit, the in pursuit. Love is the in pursuit, but truth is what helps us to define that love. Does that make sense? 
Nobody's shaking their head. Okay, so let's go a little further with this. So in other words, let's say that there's someone that I really love, but they have this sin that they're engaged in, okay? And what happens is devoid of truth, I love them. What I start saying is, well, you know what? God knows they're made that way. And they've prayed and asked God. And they said they love God and they're a believer in Jesus. Therefore, that must not be that bad. And so what happens is I begin to excuse behavior that truth does not excuse. So I'm not loving them in truth. I'm loving them through emotion. Do you see that? So truth and love, in essence, what we're saying are inseparable. But the reason I separate them a little bit there for definition purposes is because of this. Many, many people in our world pursue truth without love. And when that happens, what you have is legalism or judgmentalism. Legalism is, well, you know what? This is what the truth says, and this is what I live by, and if you don't live by that, well, you're not as good as I am, or it leads you to judgmentalism of like that person's a sinner, that person's outside, that person is less than me. You see, truth, missing that element of love, doesn't see the heart of the Father, and it doesn't convey the heart of the Father. So that brings us to this. Truth without love leads to legalism and judgmentalism, and love without truth leads to error and sin. Therefore, we have to pursue love through truth. And both of them are epitomized in the person of Jesus Christ, which is the heart of what John is telling us here. Look how he continues in verse eight. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay, what is John talking about there? John is such a poetic writer. He loves writing things with lots of symbolism and connection there. So think again about what he's saying there. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. So is it old or is it new? And John says, yes, it is. It's as new as Jesus taught us this, but it's as old as the law of Moses. I mean, both of the things that Jesus quotes as the greatest commandment, both came from the law of Moses, right? I mean, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's from Deuteronomy. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus. So it's a new commandment that actually is really, really old, but it's new because now it has hands and feet. How does it have hands and feet? Because we were incapable of loving God with everything that we had. We were incapable of loving other people as we love ourselves until Jesus came. And now Jesus has empowered us. What was in him is now in us. What is that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which we've never had dwelling inside of us until Jesus ascended into heaven and he came at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is what empowers us and directs us in love. So John says, this isn't an old truth, but it is a new truth in the sense that it is new to you. It's new to the fact that you can actually live this out. And then he says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, I want you to think that John pictures that in such a way that it's a progression. He doesn't talk about it as a definitive act, right? He doesn't say the, old, the darkness is gone and there's nothing but light there. Listen again to what he says. The darkness 
is passing away. That's a continual action. And the true light is already shining. That's a continual action. So we are in flux between these two. There is a darkness that is retreating and there is a light that is coming. But it's like John slows it way down to understand that this is the life that we are living. That we are living between these two realities and we are living in this progression that we have there. Now, I believe that what John is highlighting here is resurrection. Okay, think about that again. Darkness is passing away. True light is already shining, okay? Is that not a picture of resurrection? Think about what happened at the resurrection. The darkest day of humanity, Jesus dies. Not only does the sun get blotted out, but they have to take his body down before darkness completely falls, and they put him into a grave, which is even darker, and they roll a stone in front of it, which can creates complete and utter darkness. And for three days, that was the existence. And then all of a sudden, on the third day, it says the dawn of that day, the stone rolls away, angels of light appear, the sun comes over the horizon, peers into the grave where the stone has been rolled back. Now, all of a sudden, light floods in and light is flooding out because the angels are inside the tomb when Peter gets there and John get there and they see what's happening. They see these two beings inside of there. Now, light has come in where darkness was. This is a picture of resurrection. I believe John is helping us picture this because that's what's happening in your life. When you follow after Jesus, you are connecting with the resurrection of Jesus. Just like baptism, I am buried with Christ and I am being raised with Christ, okay? So I'm dying to that old man of self and sin and now I'm being raised in resurrection life. Dead and darkness is gone and behold, light has come. But yet we are living out this reality. Look how he continues in verse nine. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Okay, so in other words, he's saying the contradiction here. If you say that you're in the light and you hate your brother, you're still in darkness. You're not in light. Listen how he continues. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him, there is no cause for stumbling. So he gives us both the thesis and the antithesis, right? This is the first one is, if you say this, but you don't do this, that's not true. Because if you're doing this, this is what's gonna happen. And there's no stumbling in you. First of all, let me just say this. What he's portraying to us there is understanding the connection of other believers to their heavenly father. It would be like this. If any of you invited me and said, man, Jack, I would be so blessed to have you as my pastor come and eat dinner with me and my family. I want to invite you to my home and I want you to come in and, and we want to treat you to a meal and, and have great conversation with you. And I'd be like, oh, man, that's awesome. Thank you. I'm, I'm humbled by that. And then you said, but please don't bring your wife, okay? Because, you know, we just really don't like her. Um, she carries down the conversation. You know, it's really, we, we really enjoy you, but we don't want, do you think I'm gonna go? No, I'm gonna be offended by that. Deeply, deeply offended, why? Because me and her are one. And if you don't like her, I assume you don't like me because we're the same. And I don't care what you think about me if that's the way you think about her. I'm never darkening the door of your house. 
Do you understand that other believers are loved by God and are become one with him? And when you say, oh, I love God, but sister so-and-so, oh, she gets on my nerves, God becomes deeply offended by that. God says, if you won't have her, then you won't have me. If you won't have him, then you don't have me because they are mine and we are one. That's what John is portraying to us here. And I believe the last part of this verse seems to point back to something Jesus taught as well. Listen to this and tell me if you don't think John has this in his mind as he ends that verse. Mark chapter nine, verse 42, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What is Jesus saying there? All the ones I have saved are precious to me. And you know what? If you go in there and you start burdening them with things that I haven't burdened them with, I'm going to burden you. I'm going to burden you with a millstone and you'd be thrown into the depths of the sea because that would be better for you than what would happen on judgment day if you cause one of these little ones of mine to sin. How, how, what does that mean? Does that mean like we're tempting them to... I'll tell you what it means, and this will, this will be very convicting. It's when we go to somebody and we say, you say you're a believer in Jesus, but I see you smoking those cigarettes. And let me just tell you something. A saved person does not smoke. Therefore, you need to throw those things away and be honest about loving God or either be honest about being a worldly person. You know what you've just done? You've caused someone to sin. Why? Because even if they throw those cigarettes away, the only reason they did it is because you told them to, not because God did. See, we don't know what God's doing in their life. We don't know where they are in their struggle and, and where they are in their progression, but God does. And therefore, when we put unneeded burdens on people and we put our judgments on them and we put on them maybe a lifetime of walking with Jesus and saying, this is where you should be because this is where I am, we cause them to sin and we put unneeded burden on them. It's not about us fixing everybody and making them like us. It's about us getting involved in their life and loving them and walking them to the point of completion and maturity in Christ not demanding it of them before they can ever exhibit it or even know that it's a problem. Do you see this? Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that, but just show you that that's the antithesis of resurrection. There is no resurrection yet. Light has not invaded your tomb. The dawn has not happened. You are not saved if this is your condition. You are still walking around in darkness. Now, the rest of this is weird because John almost breaks into song here, or at least into some kind of Hebraic metric that he begins to write in with some kind of rhythm to it. And it seems out of place, doesn't it? He's talking about these deep, very, very powerful foundational understandings of what it means to walk with Jesus. And then he breaks into verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are 
strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Well, I thought we already established pretty clearly who it was John was writing to. Why is it that he has to delineate this further right here? Why, why is it all men? Why is it just fathers and young men and then the little children? Well, let me just say that if you dig into this, there's all kinds of perspectives that are out there. Depending on what teacher or Bible scholar you go to, they'll say, well, John could be talking about this, or I think he may be talking about that. Really, we don't know exactly what it was in John's mind as he begins to explain this. But I believe, after reading many of them, that the one that makes the most sense to me is this, that John is talking about a progression of being saved. So in other words, little children represents those who have just become saved. The young men is representative of those who have been saved, but now they're walking in Christ and they're fighting the battles of what it means to live in Christ. And so they're engaging the world and they're learning about the depths of understanding what it is, is their theology and their practice practicology, if you want to, the way they're practicing out their life and living it out and what it means to walk in light. And then there are the fathers that are more like John, the people who have been walking it years and years and years, and now they've been looked up to, and they're kind of esteemed as the ones who have been there and been consistent. And these are the ones who are not like fighting those, those questions anymore. Is God real? Is he not real? No, they've become very solidified in the things that they believe. And the reason I say that is because look at, look at the way he explains it again. Little children, your sins are forgiven. Fathers, you know him who was from the beginning. Young men, you have overcome the evil one. Children, you know the father. Fathers, you know him who was from the beginning. Young men, you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Well, I believe that this is three different pictures, and I, the way I can best explain this for application purposes is, you know, when you become a Christian, you accept Jesus by faith. I mean, a lot, let's be honest, like little children are just like, they accept it. And they may have questions, and they may have a lot of questions, but the questions don't really deter their faith, does it? How can God be everywhere at once? And you know, they're like, oh, I don't know. You know, we would try to explain it the best we can. They're like, oh, okay and they just move on. But then you get older, and all of a sudden, they start questioning things. They start really grappling with these deep-seated questions about what it means to love God, and what it, who is God, and how do I understand him? And that's kind of like the ones who are fighting those battles. And then it's almost like you get to the end of your life, and it comes back to that simplicity of faith that you had as a child. And while as a child, you may have had many, many questions, as you get older and you become that father figure, you have less questions, and it's like everything becomes more simplified again. Now, C.H. Spurgeon, who I believe is probably, this is my opinion, the best pastor that's ever existed, he says it this way. Now, a babe in Christ knows 20 things, and a young man in Christ knows 10 things, but a father in Christ knows one thing, and that one thing he knows thoroughly. It is very natural for us at first to divide our little stream into many rivulets. But as we grow gray in grace, we pour it all into one channel, and then it runs with a force efficient for our life's work. I trust I know many doctrines, many precepts, and many teachings, but more and more my knowledge gathers around my Lord, even as the bees swarm around their queen. May it come to this with all of us. And he quotes Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I decided not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
I think what John is talking about is this progression of maturity that we should be experiencing. And the more you walk with Christ, the less and less questions that you have, not because you've necessarily gotten the answers to them, but because you've decided what really matters is Jesus and him crucified. And so you begin to let those pursuits of unanswered questions go, and you begin to pour yourself into that one stream of your relationship with God. That's how important love is to John. That's how important he believes love is to Jesus, what Jesus modeled, what he saw Jesus do. And I believe that that's what he's relaying to us in this passage as well. Now, think about this. Love is a passionate commitment of the will to the ultimate good of another. That's what John gives to us in this passage. Think about that again. Love is a passionate commitment of the will to the ultimate good of another. Now, what's not that? The ultimate good of myself. So true biblical love is when we dedicate ourselves to someone else's good. Do you say that, do you believe that's consistent with God? That God demonstrated his love by doing something that was the ultimate good for someone else? God demonstrated his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see that? So I'll leave you with two questions today. First one, who is God calling you to express love to? Now, maybe I should have put this word in there. Who is God calling you to express biblical love to? And let me just say this. If it's someone who looks like you, talks like you, dresses like you, and loves the things that you love, that's probably not God calling you. That's your comfort calling you. God calls you to the marginalized. God calls you out of your comfort zone. God calls you to walk in a way that demonstrates faith in him, not faith in you. So again, with that context, who is God calling you to express love to? Second one, what does loving those God has placed right around you look like? Now, I'm not talking about the world here, I'm talking about your brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, think about it. We come here week after week, and, and how many of us here don't really know each other? Now, again, in a group this size, it's impossible for you to be very good friends with everybody else in this room. But what I'm saying is it's very easy for us to gravitate to people who are like us and right around us than it is to venture out of our comfort zones and to engage someone who isn't like us. Um, you, you sit in a circle, probably a table or a chair or somewhere around people that you know, probably family members, maybe friends. But what about people who are sitting three rows behind you or 10 seats away from you or three table sections in front of you or behind you? What about them? What would you think about if you had to walk with them through a crisis? Well, that's what this question is really getting at the heart of. Again, I'm not telling you you need to go find the person three, six, 10, whatever away from you. What I'm challenging you to do is to go back to your relationship with God and say, God, show me how I can better love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Give me an opportunity. Show me how I can walk in the light in the body of Christ that you've put me in. Amen? Let's pray. 
God, we love you. We thank you for just a wonderful picture of who you are. And uh, it reminds us of what we are called to. The depths of our salvation are found in the way we express that salvation. Lord, our gratitude and the debt that we owe you for paying our sin debt, Lord, it shows in the way that we want to honor you with our life, a life that we can live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet sometimes it's easier for us to stay in our comforts, to stay in things that are easy for us, things that we like and fit around our abilities and wants and needs. And that doesn't cause us to trust you, to display faith in you and for us to grow. God, I pray that you would help us to understand what it truly means to love others the way you have loved us. Lord, first, it takes a very deep um, account of who we are and what we've been saved from. And when we realize that, we realize there's no one outside the grace of God. And therefore, it should call us to trust in big ways, to pray really big prayers, to see a powerful spirit work in ways that is humanly impossible to explain. Lord, that's the kind of testimony we want to have. That's what we want to embrace. And we ask this in the name that's above every name.